Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ... How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Consequence Uncut a series that gives listeners and readers a deeper dive into our features with major artists. For this episode, we're talking to our 2023 Filmmakers of the Year, and they are the directors of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, the trio of Joaquin Dos Santos, Kemp Powers, and Justin K. Thompson. I don't think you can make a movie like the one we just did. I don't think you can create an algorithm for it. I think the algorithm is the human heart. I think the algorithm is in the soul. And I think you have to let humans bring their soul to this kind of movie. And it can only be done with fingerprints. It can only be done with like holding pencils and pens in your hand and making the messy marks that eventually coalesce into beauty. I'm Mija, lead podcast producer at Consequence. And I'm Ben Kay, editorial director at Consequence. So Ben, welcome to Consequence Uncut. I feel like this is our little baby that we've been nurturing and we just haven't had you on the podcast yet, but you're so involved in everything that has to do with editorial, with the podcast. And what better time to bring you on than Filmmakers of the Year for a film that I dare might say that you really enjoyed? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could say that. First of all, I feel like an absentee father if you're going to use that this is our baby thing, because like I've been working with you on it for so long. Like many fathers, they are present in people's lives and they don't get the credit that they deserve. And this is why we're having you on Consequence Uncut right now. And because it's a Marvel thing and yeah, you are right. all things Marvel. If I was going to come on at any point, it would be interviewing some people who had something to do with Marvel Comics. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, but it's this this has been like such a, uh, you know, I'm so excited to actually be on this finally. Um, but yeah, I mean, we decided to go and name three directors, our filmmakers of the year for our 2023 annual report as somebody who has a Marvel tattoo, a Marvel shrine in their living room who grew up on this stuff to, to get to talk to somebody. This might be the first time I've actually spoken to somebody like directly involved in We'll call it Marvel Cinematic Universe films. We can argue the looseness of how connected this is to the MCU, but that's besides the point. The multiverse always screws things over. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, Donald Glover was in this, you know, technically from the MCU Spider-Man movie. So it counts. It's all one and the same. Exactly. But yeah, this, you know, Spider-Man and Marvel mean a lot to me personally. But like beyond that, I don't think you can watch this movie and not think that it's a phenomenal film not just animated not just superhero like 
It is groundbreaking, stunning visually. The only reason it really works is because there's a great story underneath it. So what a confluence for me to be like, I get to talk to three, I'll say three of the thousands of people who really made this happen. I don't get starstruck that often, but when I talk to people who do stuff that really meant something to me, I can get real, real goofy. And I think that happened here. <laughs> I think you're doing yourself a disservice. You never come across as as completely starstruck. I, I, I thought it was really cool because it's getting to see a person that really loves a subject, get to talk about it with people who are so talented at what they're doing. I mean, like, just thinking about the idea that one of the directors was working on Soul, was tapped to work on this project, didn't even yeah. have to apply for it. And, yeah. you know, when you think about the world bending, the, the, the level of story that you have in animation, but sp particularly in Soul itself, and then you take that and you put that in the context of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this is a level of storytelling that just doesn't, it, it doesn't always exist on film because we're in one of the best eras for animation. So mm -hmm, the level of sure. storytelling, the, the way that they build these whole universes and then iterate it based on the context or different themes that are supposed to happen later on in the narrative is so at the fingertips of where animation is right now. And then yeah. applying that to MCU makes it even more powerful, which is why this film was set up for success, I would say. For sure. And yeah. definitely <laughs> came, brought that home. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was Kemp Powers who worked on Soul, uh, one of the three directors. What's funny is that he actually his kind of focus in this, his directing was mainly in uh, voice acting and kind of like that kind of manual direction of actors. But the most fascinating thing to me out of this interview, you touch on it, is is how these three people kind of ran point on creating that level of animation and that level of storytelling if animated storytelling is at a peak right now like this just built a skyscraper on top of, on top of the peak it takes it so much farther than any animated storytelling that i can even remember it, it like it doubles down and triples up on on what happened in into the spider-verse the first one mm -hmm. And the way that these three guys worked together independently with their massive teams to make that happen and how each one brought their specialty to it, how one of them would, you know, go in and handle the production design and one of them would go in here and, you know, the, the actual mechanical directions of the action sequence, which blows my mind how you direct those sequences as an yeah. in, in animation. Like, exactly. You have you have hundreds of spider people racing through this futuristic home base that because of the nature of spider-man doesn't really have an up or a down mm -hmm. and you've got all these wild character designs and you have to make that action make sense you have to make it look in like the production style of everything else in the film you have to make each individual's character's production style make sense and work together mm -hmm. and you have to match massive amounts of dialogue now it probably helps that a lot of that dialogue is coming from masked people but mm. <laughs> you still have you still have to make all of that work you can understand once you kind of step back and look at you know watching the thing you're like this is insane this is crazy what they've managed to pull off here step back and think about how did they manage to pull that off well yeah. no kidding it took three directors to do that like i'm oh, surprised 100%. that's all it took you know it's basically like those huge epic scenes at the end of Game of Thrones. How do you not do that without an insane amount of people? 
Yeah, you you want you give credit to the, like the director on those things, but like I think Game of Thrones might have actually started people going like, well, look at cinematography and production design and all these other elements that are involved in making these epic things. I think people nowadays are a little more prepared to kind of zoom out and and see all the elements of work that went into whatever it is they're consuming. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so to talk to three guys who headed that up and were in control of that was was fascinating and enlightening. And I think that because they're so at the top of their game, especially in this project, but just in general, some of the things that they're working on, you know, it was also really inspirational at the end to hear them really talk about the role that the human touch and the human mind and Mm -hmm. the human creativity really gives to projects like these, particularly in animation. This is where you can sort of see that there's something magical about the way that we'll interpret something individually. I, mm-hmm. I almost got, I almost was thinking about um, that Disney movie Elemental where, you know, they've mm-hmm. just decided that they're like four different types of people. And <laughs> so someone has to literally think about, okay, so what happens to a water person when they get hot, <laughs> you know, and what happens yeah. to a fire person? Like, do they get totally snuffed out if they get, if they touch water? Like what's the shelf life here? Right. You know? And I think that that individuality is what makes animation so special. What, what made this so special and what really makes this whole process of creating a film this way something that is just so delicious to consume. Right. Yeah. And I, that conversation came up because, you know, I was watching it the night before the interview just to, to refresh myself on it. And the way that certain scenes warp color and warp style, particularly with Gwen Stacy's character, I started seeing things that I was like, this is what AI is trying to do and can't do. My immediate comparison, because it's Marvel, was like the opening credits of Secret Invasion, which I don't know if you've seen, but were widely derided for being gobbledygook of AI. And they literally came out and said, oh, yeah, AI helped create this thing. And it was not great. Like, it was interesting, I think, and separate topic, but there was something that felt not on about it. Something was off. And so watching this film where there is such wild morphing of animation and knowing how big of a production load that is, I was like, where do you guys stand on the use of AI? Because it's going to be pushed on you at some point. And to do stuff like this and the timeline that you had to do stuff on, like you would think logically you have to buy into it at some point. And they were just like, no, like you can't, you can't, you can't do this without human heart, human hand and human mind. Like things that happen so quickly on screen and, and seem to blend things together so fast or, or there's this just this brief moment where there's a change in color or texture or something. Mm-hmm. You know, you could randomize that with AI, but you're never going to get it right. It's never going to line up just so that it conveys exactly the emotion, the the excitement that it needs to in that moment. And I go back to that Gwen Stacy scene. Like, those scenes are gorgeous. They're heartbreaking. The, the set design, the production design, the character work mm-hmm. all play into that. And you, you can't do that without humanity involved. And that's mm-hmm. what these guys were talking about. So that was really, really cool to, to hear them respond to that. Yeah, it's that hyper-reality. It's even more real because you know that someone was thinking about every single detail 
And so many, so many details. You know, when you watch it, you're just, you're so touched on so many levels by the color, maybe even just the way that they chose to draw that scene. And I, mm-hmm. I know, to render, it's probably more mm-hmm. like render. Just every single detail like that is so mm-hmm. powerful in this movie. And it could be overwhelming, yeah. but it's not. Especially in an age where like superhero films have really devolved into being overwhelming at times. You know, mm-hmm. CGI cluster cusses on on big finale <laughs> fight, fight sequences. Yes. This thing is overwhelming, but it never consumes you. And that's yeah. a really amazing trick. That is a perfect way to even just talk about the the whole interview. I mean, it was, it was really, <laughs> really cool, but it, it's, it's like just enough. Yeah, and this is exactly why they are our filmmakers of the year. I hope everybody enjoys the full interview and you can read the editorialized version of this interview on consequence.net along with the rest of all annual report we have you know albums of the year films of the year comedian of the year tv performer of the year year, artist of the year tons of interviews tons of essays tons of lists and i'm going to say this one's my favorite because i did it so (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening everybody and uh, thanks for reading on consequence and uh, yeah enjoy our chat with the directors of spider-man across the spider-verse Awesome. And now, without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Joaquin, Kent, Justin, and Ben for this interview. Please enjoy. Well, gentlemen, I just rewatched this film last night trying to take notes, and I literally got through an hour and a half of it. I looked down and I had just one note because I was so engrossed. And it's such just a, a spectacular film. And clearly, I don't have any of allegiance to spider-man at all i have he's meant nothing to me as a character so clearly yeah clearly so just kind of congratulations on on putting together a real masterpiece of, of cinema let alone animation or just superhero films thank you oh yeah. man thank you that means a ton and i guess because i didn't really know where to start let's just start with there were three directors on this film you three gentlemen what does that look like? How what what kind of roles did each of you have to take on? What is a three person directorial job on an animated film like this like? It's funny because for a while it was kind of the three of us hovering over each other with everything because people might not realize the the lifespan of an animation production is years. For the beginning, when we're doing the development and making a lot of the key decisions, something like what each character is going to look like, their costumes, the worlds. All that stuff like that, the three of us were pretty much in every meeting together. And then as you get into your production pipeline, you know, you start bringing in the actors, you know, you move from storyboards to animation. Each of us, I think, have like really great specialties that allowed us because understand, it's like we made five movies in one. So the only way to have any chance of even like finishing this film in a decent amount of time is if we kind of split up and focus in our specialty areas and then just check in with each other every single day. The wonderful thing about that first year of being in every meeting together is that, honestly, we just get to know each other's tastes. So even if one person isn't in a particular meeting, it's it's the type of thing where it's like, oh, yeah, that looks pretty good to me, but something tells me Justin or Joaquin is going to have an issue with that. So it actually saves a little bit of time that we understand one another and kind of know each other's tastes really well. We'll still check in with each other every day, but you know, you're at a certain point where you're in edit while at the same time you have dailies happening while at the same time, there's still visual development going on. 
all those three of those things are happening at the exact same time. So it helps to have three different guys, three different people who have those specialties to be able to sit in each of those meetings and then do either an end of the day check-in update or a beginning of the next day morning check-in. I know it sounds pretty chaotic, but when people ask me like, how did three guys direct this film? I'm like, how can you make this film without three people? Is is the question I have just because of the scale of what we had to do. For sure. What, I mean, so then basically like what were each of your silos? For me, um, obviously, edit, spending a lot of time in edit, recording actors and helping with the story and the script, you know, dynamically uh, with working with Phil and Chris and uh, Dave Callahan. Those were three things that I think that like I pretty much, you know, I think I excel at those things. Um, so that w- I'd say those were my kind of specialty areas. And I think because I'm a production designer, but in my background, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a production designer. So and I was a production designer on the first film. So now I bring all that experience with me. So of course, within our trio, a lot of the the lighting, the the, the effects, the the visual design of the film, the you know, just seeing it across the finish line once it leaves layout, once it leaves camera department and just getting everything from the visual development onto the screen and working with ImageWorks, I handle a lot of that side of things. Yeah. And then my background, you know, I started as a story artist and worked my way up through, you know, directing and, and television and then producing. But my my background is really sort of visual storytelling, camera placement, a lot of the choreography of like the action and stuff. So, you know, like Kemp was saying, this thing is dynamic and fluid and it's always evolving and changing. So there were sequences that were like, hey, we feel pretty good about this. This thing's going along the pipeline and then story will shift and change and visuals will have to change as a result as well. So Mm -hmm. that all sort of goes down the line. So that's, it's an ever evolving thing that you're working, you know, you're working into the pipe. Right. And I have so many questions about that kind of fluidity, but before I get there, I, I am just curious about how you three land this project. Kemp, you had just come off Soul. Justin, you said you've done. I was the production designer on the on the first film. Hakim had done some directorial stuff. This, who I mean, it's a beast of a project to even look <laughs> at from like a audition, like I don't know, a, trying to get that that job. It's so weird because even you phrasing it that way, like get this job. This isn't necessarily like a job that people get. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not like right. There's a listing. We're looking for it. It, it's honestly, you're invited to create something because I'm very much like, I don't see myself as a looking for jobs kind of artist. You know what I mean? I like, I look for the opportunity to build something with other creatives. And for me, at least, I saw Into the Spider-Verse when I was still in production on Soul up at Pixar. They brought it up to screen it there before it came out. And just like everyone else, I was just blown away. I was like, wow, that's what they did was a masterpiece. If I ever have an opportunity to work with these guys, that'd be really cool because they did something really special. So I have to thank COVID, to be honest, partially, because we finished Soul's production remotely because everything was shut down. So because of that, I was back in LA months earlier than I expected to be. And I was having these conversations about what I wanted to do next. And that led to an introduction to Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who told me their idea for this film and invited me to be a part of it. So it's hilarious because if not for us having, I was actually working on Spider-Verse 
within two days of wrapping production on Soul. So wow. by the time Soul came out, I had been working on this film over six months. And wow. just like, and that wouldn't have been possible if, you know, production was now remote and we were wrapped up. So, you know, it, it was basically just, I was a fan of what had been accomplished on the first film. That led to a meeting with Phil Lord, Chris Miller, in which they pitched basically what this film was going to be. I was kind of blown away by how different it was than the first film. Then I quickly afterwards met Joaquin and Justin. I was like, okay, none of us have hair. That's a good sign. (laughs) (laughs) The first qualifier. You know, we just we just hit it off right away because ultimately it's like, who are you going to want to be be comfortable spending what you know are going to be years in the trenches with? So you got to be feel comfortable with the people. They were both talented guys in their own right who had a lot of ideas. I felt like I had a lot of ideas to contribute. And then we were kind of off to the races. That's me. That's how I ended up here. There's, you know, when you first get in, it's sort of like, it's who you know and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And, and part of that is is weirdly true. You know, I had worked with Mike Moon and Charlie Bean on a Tron show years ago, and we kept up a relationship. And I think they vouched for me. Mike was at Sony at the time. Uh, they said, like, this guy might be the guy. I'd had a resume that was pretty action heavy, and I'd worked on, like, you know, stuff that played dramatically, comedically, and action-wise. I got a uh, I got a call to you know spend a, a coffee meeting with Phil Lord. This was before the first film that even was in development. Still, I think we hung out. I just kind of geeked out on him for a while. I was in the middle of a middle of a show. I kind of made a fool of myself, <laughs> and uh, and then you know a few years later, these guys dropped the trailer, and the entire industry was like, "Whoa, like, what's <laughs> what's going on here?" And a little bit after that, I had gotten a cold call from Christine Belson, who runs the studio. And she was like, hey, do you want to do you want to direct on Spider-Verse 2? And it wasn't I mean, it was like I just said yes on the phone. I was like, yes, I do. Yeah, sure. Why wouldn't yes. You? Came in for a meeting. The film hadn't come out yet. Justin uh, was still wrapping the first film. He was nice enough to like show me lighting, show me like what they were doing and, and final picture. And I got to hung, hang out for, you know, five, six months as the the, the, the first film was wrapping. We were just starting what the, the grains of the ideas for a, a sequel could be. And that was it. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of like, and then, you know, we all got to meet each other. We all got to know each other as we were, we were brought on. And like Kemp said, it's, I think we all came with ideas and we all gelled because the the bad side of this is that you get people that don't particularly like each other very much. And it's a war the entire time and it's pain. And and it very much was not that. That's awesome. And it does, it does sound like it was meeting the right people and having the right creative discussions and whether it be fandom or, creative understanding of what was happening with the Spider-Verse film and, and what would have come next. And if that gelled, then it was, let's do it. Right. Which is it's vibes, right? I mean, you gotta like, you gotta like sync up with the people creatively. So even like those conversations, I, I feel like I made a fool of myself with Phil. The film was like, dude, you were fine. And it was great. And we had a really good conversation and I could see into your brain a little bit and it yeah. was wonderful. Yeah. So I think those things need to, those things need to happen. Yeah. And I think on a, on a project of, of, this size and of this kind of, for lack of a better term, creative style and weight, that seems hyper important to have that connection. Which brings me to that kind of fluidity of the whole production, because I watched a couple interviews with you three, and you always mentioned how like constantly things were changing, this line of dialogue changed, or this animation changed. It would seem such an intricate production that that kind of stuff would be limited. I was surprised to learn that that's the exact opposite of what actually happened. How does that even work? How does it, how are you, 
you've got a thousand people working on this project over what two three years and you're tweaking costume designs and forget about the action sequences i mean the hyper hyperness of that stuff to change that at all during production i would think would take months Mm. just that one sequence so when we're making these films um their films and all we really think about is the story and all we really focus on is our story and why we're making the choices we're making and are we hitting the right emotional beats and are we actually being clear to the audience about what our intention is then we do a lot of screenings i think we did a 10 11 screenings while we were making this movie and every time we do a screening we stand back, we analyze with Phil and Chris and a bunch of other friends of the film and, and, and ourselves. And we all kind of decide what, you know, when we hear the audience's reaction, obviously if they're feeling like it's too slow in a place or if it's confusing somewhere, or if they didn't quite feel like they were having fun somewhere where we, where we wanted them to be having fun. And if it felt like you know, something was like maybe too scary, you know, um, then we make, we start talking in story and, you know, those, those conversations start in edit with Kemp and, um, and Phil and Chris and, and, and all of us. And we just start workshopping what's the best way to tell the story in a way that, you know, is going to be clearer to the audience and is going to deliver the emotional needs that we want. And then of course, that means, you know, from yeah, since animation is broken up into many, many different parts and it kind of works like you have to go from edit and then you go to storyboards, then you go to camera, then you go to animation and so on, so forth down the line. You know, there is like a residual effect, but it's not like we just took like the counselor scene completely out of the movie and then just right. replaced it with something else. We had the counselor scene from day one. We just kept adjusting it. So it's not, you know, when you hear like, yeah, we're making changes. What we're making is how do we make that scene work better? How do we make that scene work better? So it's not like a complete redo and a complete rethink, sure. you know, of like, hey, what should we have here? It's this scene, which we, we had envisioned together or any scene in the movie, whether it's the chase in 2099's world when when Miles has his big moment up on the train. You know, that scene on the train where Miles says, nah, I'm going to do my own thing. That was in the movie from day one. But we had to iterate on it to get you to feel that moment where Miles says that, to make that land and to make you really understand why he's saying it and to set that up all the way down in the first act it took a lot of pushing and pulling and a lot of adjustments all along the all along the the, the story you know and so there's little minute changes that are going to happen and Kemp then has to go re-record with the actors and yep. you know and and then we have to redub we have to realign the animation and and the animation performance has to now react to this new and you know acting performance yeah so i think what we're always committed to, and I think what was such a great joy about this movie is like with Kemp and Joaquim and myself, we were all so, we had limitless energy and so do our producers. We had limitless energy to make sure that we spent all of our time just trying to make the film better. 
and our crew knew that we don't get these kind of opportunities to do it very often in animation. It's super rare that you get that kind of opportunity to go to this level of storytelling and this level of care where somebody does actually let you make a change. A lot of times you don't have that opportunity, but we treated this like a big budget independent film where we were constantly figuring out to each other, could this be better? I feel like there's a transcription of what everything you just said that's like, here's why they're filmmakers of the year. Like, this is, this is the work that, that was put into this thing that really made it special. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. We did an interview with Daniel Pemberton earlier in the year, and he talked about how the Sonics would change, the, the score would change on a dime. Um, and I remember seeing a an animator had posted his or their progression of the uh, Spider Rex and the, the, the way it came up at first. Mm-hmm. And then like, oh, no, we need to change it and do it this way, this way. And seeing all that work continue to change. And it, it struck me that to what you just said, that there is something you guys knew going into it that was extremely unique about the product that was being made, that you were able to have thousand people working. And I've heard this number a, a couple of times in these interviews, 753 years in combined work hours, right up to the last minute to make this work. So can you speak maybe a, a little bit more like what it was like working with such a large group of creatives in so many different capacities and getting to that finish line because that finish line came down pretty much to the wire work was going on three two three weeks prior to release i I just wanted one thing i everyone we should all comment on this one thing i really do want to point out though because people hear that thousand people thing and i just don't want people to get the idea that like there's our offices and phil and chris's offices and there's a thousand people lined up every day Right. checking in. Yeah, yeah, we got a lot of credit to our leads on this film. Like yeah. each of our leads are filmmakers in their own right. They're artists in their own right. A guy like uh, Mike Lasker, who's like our VFX, you know, supervisor, he runs a talented team of people with the same amount of passion that, you know, any of the three of us or Phil and Chris, you know, do. And with the specific goal of kind of creating brown breaking VFX to kind of deliver on these ideas we put forward, you know, uh, like a guy like, you know, Alan Hawkins, our, 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 our animation soup, like each, our department heads are all like superstars mm-hmm. in, in their own right. And I just right right off the bat, it's important for people to understand that there's a lot of people on our team that none of the three of us have ever met because there actually are like levels of supervisors who each have their own teams that are helping execute. And the key thing that you really need to do is just have a great level of communication with your leads and different leads speak more to different ones of us. You know what I mean? Like Obviously, a guy like Joaquim, who is like a master storyboard artist on his own right, is going to do a lot of communicating 
with our our story leads. You, you see what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. just to get that right off the bat is like sure. when you hear that number, I think people because people I've had people on the street ask me about that. And I'm right. like, oh, a friend of mine, you probably know them because they worked <laughs> in Vancouver and this on your film. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't actually talk to all <laughs> thousand people every day. Right. There's there there are leads who actually run these teams, and then they have lieutenants below them, sure. so that even the leads sometimes don't. It's just it's it's all about communication right. to, to execute. I, I I don't like to make a military comparison, but that's the best way to make it. You know what right. I mean? Is like we have to be the generals, but. There, there is a lot of of people who um they have teams of their own, and I'll I'll let these guys flesh out a little more. But just wanted to say that right off the bat. Yeah, no, I got you. I think filmmaker of the year then has to kind of go down the line, right? It's it's yes. it's you three. You're getting the yes. title, yeah. But it's it's everybody. A hundred percent. I mean, it's 100%. such it's animation, especially. You know what I mean? It's like you because it's iterative because we get to sort of go back and keep making these tweaks like everybody's hands are involved at all times aside from from all our leads being filmmakers in their own right i think just have you know you have to have trust in their instincts because there are times where you're leaving them alone to 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 sort of run and then you're having these big mass check-ins when they're showing you a, a big group of stuff and you're not noodling over every every single shot until it gets to Justin's eyes at the end, and then he is absolutely looking at every single frame of the, <laughs> the picture at all times. Like, so it's really about that trust, and it's about that that communication and being able to sort of separate yourself from like, hey, there's this specific thing that I want to do that's very specific to me, and there are times where you have to let sort of separate yourself from that instinct and say, you know what, this is okay too. Like, what you brought to the table is what is making this feel unique now. So trusting their 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 unique uh, instincts, and then also knowing when you've got to like dig your heels in and say like, "I'm sorry, sorry guys, we're asking you to go to the well again." Yeah, it's it's one of those. One of the things I want to talk about in terms of that kind of communication that you two were just discussing, and I think to go back to the kind of uh, what Justin was saying about the the story being the core of the thing. For me, this film more so even than Into, but uh, the the use of color in the change of color between scenes and worlds in Across the Spider Verse, like was in the theater. I saw it in Dolby Atmos, and like color was great and the sound was fantastic. But yeah. that the color stopped me. Like there were times when I lost dialogue and just let the scene hit me. Gwen's conversation with her dad when she finally comes back. I can't not cry to that. And a lot of that is just the the world that is painted there. How do you communicate that down the line? Um, especially when you're, as Kemp said, kind of talking to your your second in commands. What is that discussion? Because it's so impactful in execution. I think from the very beginning, like like we were saying, we were always together in the very beginning for the first year and a half, two years or so, we're all together. And when we were developing the story, we were constantly talking about what are the characters feeling? What are the characters' mood? What is, what's really going on in their head? What is the internal story going on? Not the external idea. You know, um, it's, yeah, there's a scene where George is reading Gwen the Miranda rights, but that's not what the scene is about. (laughs) You know, that isn't what the scene is about. So we talk about what is the scene really about? 
can we make it feel emotional if somebody's reading the Miranda rights? You know, can we make it feel emotional? And when we started focusing on that in those early conversations, we really started to sort of gel and grab onto this idea of letting the picture actually describe what's going on internally with the characters. And because we have this amazing medium that we're making this film in, we have like absolute control of that. And so we can ask ourselves, like, what color would it be if Gwen was sad? What color would it be if Miles was sad? What kind of colors make Miles feel comfortable? Um, what kind of colors make Miles feel uncomfortable? You know, and we can ask ourselves the whole time and sort of start um, plotting that throughout the film and sort of deciding also that each dimension needed its own sort of signature as well. We kind of knew that. So, and we kind of just decided really early on to start structuring the film both on the page and also visually to sort of follow what was going on internally with the characters. And you don't do it like, easily i'll tell you that it is it's not something that happens overnight many of those scenes were totally different palettes at one point and because we didn't we yeah, we try and go oh that feels too acidic or that feels too that feels too scary and we need to like kind of make it feel you know more tense and not scary and and we would just make adjustments just like we did with story because again all we ever talked about whenever we had a screening was, did it feel right to us? Mm. And did it feel right to the audience? And I could, you know, I could go on about the color for hours and hours, but I really got to give a lot of credit to our incredible art directors, um, Dean Gordon and our production designer, Patrick O'Keefe, for kind of taking all of our, all the things that we're saying and helping organize it and present it and, and work really quickly uh, with our visual effects supervisor to create all these incredible, uh, this incredible imagery that you see and organize it on screen for everyone. Yeah. And I mean, there's some just like stuff that I think like should be eternally like remembered just in the animation style from the, you know, Gwen scenes with her dad, every one of them to who I think was my favorite. He's up top here, medieval vulture, the design on him. When he first came in, I was like, I'm in. Like, I'm sold. Whatever the hell else happens, this is genius. Right on. I'm sorry? I said right on. I yeah. mean, again, that's one of those ideas, like they were saying, it was kind of a day one idea, but we didn't break what the character was, how he would visually present until, you know, we started having conversations about like, hey, what about this amazing, you know, giant puppet festival in France. I think, Kemp, you brought that to the table. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then we started looking at, uh, you know, Da Vinci sketches and like, is that a thing? We we knew we wanted him to be an intruder in Gwen's world, but Gwen's world was already like a weird intrusion on the audience's mm-hmm. eyes. Is it like an intrusion on top of an intrusion? What's going on? Um, it, but it, it, it went worked. fully the opposite direction of Gwen's world by being yeah. this flat paper thing. And it was just great. So... The, I believe the Collins Dictionary Word of the Year. Did you know that Canon event was in the top 10 finalists? <laughs> we we just shared we that on our that. text thread. Yeah. yeah. So Canon yeah, event is the, was the top 10 finalists, which I think is just cool. It speaks to the kind of the pop culture, cultural impact of this film, which just has to be cool and wild to see. Totally upset. All your years, your years of hard work, and everybody's years of hard work reach that way but it's interesting to me 
that it actually lost to AI. And AI animation is something that everybody's talking about, right? So as you're looking towards Beyond, which is the sequel, right? And all the intricacy that went into this and, and those cute, like I believe uh, Justin said earlier, like the ability for the humans to tweak this stuff and these great art designers to really have a full hand in this. Are you concerned at all? Has it started rearing its head in terms of, hey, can AI take some of this load? Uh, should AI take some of this load? No. No, I don't think you can make a movie like the one we just did. I don't think you can create an algorithm for it. Mm-hmm. I think the algorithm is the sure. human heart. I think the algorithm is in the soul. And I think you have to let humans bring their soul to this kind of movie. And it can only be done with fingerprints. It can only be done with like holding pencils and pens in your hand and making the messy marks that eventually coalesce into beauty. And that is art. And that's what we were trying to make and we will continue to make. I don't think anything can program that. I think you have to go through that feelings and you have to express them and get them onto the screen directly from the soul. It's so true. Like I said, what happened visually in this film is so emotionally impactful. It can only be the work of a group of people like yourself and those uh, you worked with to, to really add heart what's on screen. So I got to ask, I know a lot of the, the questions that a lot of the interviews that happened immediately around release, you're like, give me a second. But now we're maybe eight months out, nine months out, has have the discussions about Beyond the Spider-Verse begun in earnest. I'm sure they've been happening all the time. Oh, yeah, we're working. And there it is. That's, that's, there it that's, is. that's what we get to what we're working. Gentlemen, again, thank you so much for your time. I have it branded on my chest. I have it behind me on the wall. I'm a diehard Marvel person. This is perhaps the best Spider-Man film ever made. If not top three. Too kind. There's something so perfect about it. That means a ton, man. Thank it, it, it means a ton for fans to, to be gifted something like this. So thank you. I'll speak for everyone and say we're, we're thrilled to see what, what comes next. Um, you turn Spot into one of the most dangerous and exciting villains in the Spider Universe, which is insane. So, yeah, just just thank you for everything and, and congratulations again. Thank you. Take care, man. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.